Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sam, Josh Gad, we've got to talk about it. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I was about to say It's been around for a while, right? Ever since Frozen, that was his big sort of thing, wasn't he? He was yeah. Olaf. Yeah, and before that, he originated one of the main parts in Book of Mormon, and he just seems to be cropping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. First of all, he's in this new Armando Nucci show, Avenue Five, which is not very good. Then I saw the trailer for Artemis Fowl, and he's in it as Mulch Diggums or Duggums, I forget. He's supposed to be a dwarf in the book. They made him a giant dwarf in the movie, but they couldn't be asked to do the you know camera trickery or whatever. And then I read the other day that they're going to reboot or just make a sequel to the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. Rick Moranis back, which is exciting because I love Rick Moranis. But Josh Gaz can be playing his son. It's like he does not have the same kind of comic energy Rick Moranis has. What does he have? And you know, it's the sort of thing where it's like James Corden or something. If you're just overweight in Hollywood and a guy, you have to be like the comedy thing. Do the like you just get pushed into that category? I think it's yeah. just a bit of sizeism. But I'm, I just don't think that's where his strengths lie. And there's something annoying about someone being unfunny as opposed to any other genre. You know you mean, what I mean? Like you mean if, like if you're trying to be funny and failing, that's yeah. particularly annoying. Like yeah. a bad comedy is somehow more offensive than a bad drama. Yeah. Because you're trying to get a reaction. And I'm just, I just don't get the Josh Gad thing. He's everywhere. Mm. I mean, I think he was better in like Murder on the, Murder on the Orient Express than he was in, I don't know, Pixels. <laughs> like when he was doing like just a more straight dramatic role sure, I was like yeah, sure yeah, yeah. you're like you know saying your lines and whatever this isn't a great movie but you're not annoying me but when he's trying to be funny he's annoying you he's annoying me he can sing right so maybe that's part of the explanation for the success of him and James Corden they can both sing yeah um, but yeah other than that no I, I don't know I don't know I mean I don't have a really strong opinion about Josh Gad I don't care for the character of Olaf and maybe that is partly a reflection on on Gad in the Frozen franchise. I find that they're just straining a little too hard with that character. Yeah. I like I like my cute uh, kind of sidekick characters to just be a bit more down the line. Mm. You know, they don't need to be as wacky and zany and fourth wall breaking as uh, Olaf the Snowman. I just find that he's uh, trying a bit too much. Who is the funny fat guy in movies these days? I feel like him and James Corden have like taken those roles, but mm. they're not that funny. None of them are like John Candy. None of them have Jonah Hill back when he was heavier. You know, there's nobody, this sounds like a sort of size comment, no one filling that space. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hollywood is letting us down on that front, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for plus size funny performers. Who's playing those roles in Coen Brothers movies? Because they find fat guys funny. They yeah. they they uh, get a lot of uh, laughs out of um, overweight 
Man. Yeah, both John Goodman and Jonah Hill have slimmed down, so... Who's the uh, guy who plays Cy Abelman in A Serious Man? <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Larry. Larry. <laughs> Larry. <laughs> yeah, maybe he could do it. Yeah. He can He can fill that Yeah, niche. he should play, despite clearly being older than Rick Moranish. <laughs> Rick, Rick Moranish? <laughs> clearly being older than Rick Moranish, he should play Sean. I think it'd be good. I agree entirely. Sorry, I was lost in reverie thinking about Rick Moranis there. Um, why am I here? What is going on? Um, you're here because this is a podcast all about your fourth year at a magical school for wizards. Uh, just before term starts, uh, you and your friends get the tickets to a wizard sporting event. But after the match is over, people dressed in evil costumes set fire to all the visitors' tents, which causes a frenzy across the magical community. That same year, the Magical Wizard School is hosting the Tri-Wizard Tournament, a magical tournament between three well-known schools of magic. The contestants have to be above the age of 17 and are chosen by a magical object called the Goblet of Fire. On the night of selection, however, the goblet spews out four names instead of the usual three, with Danny unwittingly being selected as the fourth champion. Since the magic cannot be reversed, Danny is forced to go with it and brave three exceedingly difficult tasks is what I would be saying if this was a podcast adaptation of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Instead, it's just a podcast we should talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, beautiful little boy who can cast spells, Danny Moran. Cool. That's me. There's actually a Moran in Goblet of Fire. Is there? He's on the island's uh, Quidditch team. Yeah. And I was very excited as a young boy to read my own surname in a book. I'm I sure was you like, were. Well, I'm in the Potter universe now. Did, did you? You kept waiting for him to recur. Yeah. You remember? And your JK plan. came out yesterday saying that character was gay. <laughs> so now I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I'm homophobic, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On this week's film chat, we review Critical Darling: Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the latest film from acclaimed director Celine Sciamma that dares to apply the female gaze on female gaze. I'm just really proud of that pun. Been using it a lot. Sam, you'll be reviewing Birds of Prey and the fabtabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, the sort of sequel spin-off to Suicide Squad, but it doesn't feature Deadshot, doesn't feature Commander Rick Flagg, doesn't feature <laughs> El Diablo, doesn't feature Captain Boomerang, and doesn't feature Killer Croc. Well done, feminazis. You win. <laughs> I, I've forgotten all those characters' names. I've forgotten Killer Croc. How do I forget a man who was a crocodile? You yeah, feel that a, would be more memorable. It's, yeah, he's a big crocodile. Plus, we discussed the news that 15 prominent critics of legendary film magazine Kaida Cinema have quit in principle following a corporate takeover. But more importantly, what the hell is going on with Indy 5? Oh my god! Oh, it's a disaster! That's what I was saying if I was a nerd. Too busy bowling checks and, you know, mm. banging brocks. Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> All of which should leave me just enough time to pitch my latest film project. It's called Birds of Gay and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Grieving Man, mm-hmm. the one gay character in Avengers Endgame, uh, which one of the directors played in the scene at the beginning where Captain America's in that sort of therapy group. <laughs> yeah, I remember. It's basically that. a kind of mancap, gonzo, painfully erotic action soaked thrill ride where the character teams up with other prominent gay characters in big franchise movies. So it's like him, that lesbian from Rise of Skywalker, and LeFou from Beauty and the Beast, and uh, the cop from the upcoming Pixar film Onward. They all just team up <laughs> and have a fucking mad time. It's, and it's weird. It's weird. Everything gets weird. Everything gets weird and very gay. Yeah. That's but <laughs> very, very positive. <laughs> Basically, the only way to sort of compensate for the lack of representation is to go like, 
too far on one film. Mm, too much representation. Yeah, too much. Too, too much diversity. Like, people be like, oh, there's so bad representation. They're like, dial it back, Disney. <laughs> the LGBTQ community will be, will be saying that. They'll be calling for less representation. <laughs> yeah, because that's how powerful this yeah. film's going to be. All right, well, I'm excited. I look forward to this film. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Portrait of a Lady on Fire. This is the new film from Celine Sciamma, a uh, very good director. He's previously made Girlhood and Tomboy and Water Lilies, uh, all uh, very acclaimed movies. That are, that are, I haven't seen Water Lilies, but the other two are really, really good. Um, this was a, uh, a big hit at Cannes and has generated a huge amount of buzz, and so it's very excited um, to see it. It's a historical drama film, kind of a uh, largely a two-hander with only a couple other characters um, it follows uh, Marianne, played by Naomi Merlon, a painter in the 18th century who goes to paint the portrait of a uh, young aristocrat uh, called Eloise, played by Adele Hanel. But she discovers on arrival that the um, that she does not particularly want to be painted because once the portrait is completed, um, she will then be married off to a man that she doesn't know. And so uh, uh, her mother, played by Valeria Golino, asks her to observe Eloise in secret and then uh, paint her from memory and they sort of strike up a, a relationship from there. Here's a clip. Oh la la! Uh, je suis un thème! Je suis un fou! No! Oh, 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 je suis un fou! Je bouge mon dos! Je bouge mon dos! Je suis littéralement un fou! Please! My last check bounced! My children need one! Did you see this film with the London Film Festival? I've seen it twice now. And you've seen it twice? Yeah. Okay, so your your views are going to be twice as considered, twice exactly. as sharp. Um, I thought it was excellent. I, I saw it with the... I thought of... it was doubly excellent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw it a bit with the weight of expectations because everyone was raving about this movie. It got like a million five-star reviews everywhere. Um, it's the sort of film that people keep calling a masterpiece and so on. Um, and I just found that it basically, you know, was as good as people were saying that it was. Uh, it takes a huge number of boxes for me, and uh, it's been great. I've been having a great time at the cinema lately, having seen Parasite, you know, and really enjoyed that. And now I'm just getting treated to another absolutely brilliant film. Banger after banger. Banger after banger. I think, like, the film that it most directly reminded me of, or maybe, like, the film that um, triggered the most sort of similar um, experience for me watching it was If Beale Street Could Talk, another romance but they're both sort of achingly sincere and direct films. There's no irony or artifice to either of them, and they're laser-focused on the sort of humanity of the, of, the, of, the two, of the two main leads in a way that I just find very, very affecting. And they're, they're both films which I think achieve their sort of greatness just by... There's no sort of clever shortcut to the films being good. It's just that every single individual element of the film is incredibly well done. <laughs> Yeah. So, for example, this is this is a period romance of which there are a million and one, 
And it shares with the standard period romance, the kind of um, understated nature and everyone's sort of a bit reserved and repressed. And there's a lot of meaningful glances and people make these little remarks that contain great, you know, truths or huge feelings or whatever. There's a lot of people just gazing at each other and everything is being expressed in those little glances and all that kinds of stuff, which is very easy to be trite. But simply by being a great filmmaker, <laughs> putting a lot of effort in and doing it the best it could possibly be, like it, it just works. Like when people say little comments that contain a lot of meaning, they actually do. I think. Yeah. There's 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 a lot there's a lot of meaning in this movie. It is stunningly crafted. It looks really beautiful. It's like the photography is really great, and it's an incredibly precisely made film. And there's something that's so kind of captivating about how. Uh, the it's kind of austere and the elements are quite small but everything every little camera move everything that anyone does is sort of freighted like with meaning and has impact the camera's always doing these little movements to reveal things or just there are these small you know things that happen and it all lands Uh, and it achieves all of this with basically no score which is another thing that's very impressive um, there's like two pieces of music in the movie and when they when those happen you really notice it because there's no music otherwise but the way in which it sort of achieves these moments that really land with such minimalist material is uh just astonishing yeah absolutely something i really liked about it which i think might be uh celine's yama's thing i believe you've seen uh tomboy and girlhood is that all those movies i feel they the the premise could easily be the kind of lazy way to do it be quite sort of fraught and even though this movie it kind of like it occasionally has these kind of bravura moments where it kind of leans into the gothicness a little bit but it's, it's kind of like a female hangout movie for a large part it's like there's maybe like two lines said by a guy in the whole movie and uh from the beginning there's like crashing waves and you know she's going to the place and she can't see the woman she hasn't been outside for a while it's so like a bit overripe almost and it's like set up yeah yeah but then it kind of don't know if it's you know out to um subvert your expectations or it's just like doing its own thing and you just have a certain amount of baggage uh but then it's just all about them kind of chilling out and having a great time it's a movie where it's not like tragic in that oh if they were born in a more enlightened time it'd be fine it's not like titanic but the iceberg is society you know what i mean like (laughs) it's not like dune romance because whatever like you know they're in the 18th century it's more like the characters are fully aware of the time they're in you know what i mean i feel like often uh, period films about forbidden love or anything have this sort of like the kind of doom of like what could have been is laden over everything so like thickly i think that that gives the film much a greater impact because when the movie, if the movie is made the other way, then it gives the audience a very cheap get out, which yeah. is that oh well, it would be fine if it was now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas this film, I think, feels much more um, universal, and that the constraints that are on their relationships feel much more sort of relatable in that way. Um, it has a bit of a uh, utopian quality to it, um, in some ways, in that they're like just in, in the way they interact like they're, they're kind of free from the constraints of society for a little bit they're kind of gifted this grace period yeah where um, the two of them can spend time together along with uh, a maid character um and there are scenes of them just playing cards and just like getting along really well uh but i i saw i was reading an interview with uh, celine siema when she said that uh she's talking about how you know people describe the film as utopian to her but she's not sort of trying to invent something new she's sort of drawing on on her um 
own experiences and in that way in which it is grounded in like everyday interactions i think is part of what's powerful about it that's another thing that made me think of if bill street could talk like in that movie where the the couple are clearly uh, meant to be together but the film is so sort of like amazed by just how kind and respectful they are to each other yeah you know what i mean and it sort of seems magical almost even though it's like people relate to each other in this way all along and in doing this it, i felt like it kind of illuminated the oppressions that that people face in their relationships or like the ways in which society is set up to f- kind of get people to dominate each other kind of by their absence and that the fact that the movie is a queer romance is like critical to that yeah because it's it's a it's a comment on um or the, the there's something else that siama said is that she she called the film a manifesto for the female gaze and obviously it's all about women looking at each other like parasite is not a film that's like subtle about its sort of visual imagery yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's literally about women they're you know, staring at each other but in the in the kind of classic uh, male artist female muse setup there's an obvious hierarchy there and you know the muse is just there to inspire the artist and clearly one is sort of above the other uh and with with them both being women they have this totally egalitarian relationship and the film is really about equality but like just in interrelationships yeah. on on a sort of micro level, just the way in which people speak to each other and like treat each other. Um, and in that way, quite, you know, that, that, that that's part of what makes it so sort of inspiring yeah, and affecting. It's a demonstration of how liberatory it is to have, you know, more different kinds of people make films. Yeah, yeah. It's like absolutely. that you're watching a romance where it's not like one person is not trying to possess the other person. And you're like, that's actually sort of weirdly unusual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just feels so sort of refreshing and nice to see it. And I think the way the, way the film handles... It's kind of more um, uh, cerebral stuff. I really liked as well. There's a there's a there's a scene of them discussing the uh, myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, which you could. You know, I suspected that might have more than one meaning when yes, I watched the film. Exactly. And the second time, you're like, yeah, I'm uh-huh. like, I'm yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, which is a kind of story about the male gaze literally like killing somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so who's looking at who and when people are looking and when they're turning away and what you can see is very important in the film and is always being referred to but it's all in a way that feels so deeply connected to the emotional impacts rather than just a kind of little clever bit of game playing on the part of the writer where they make things link up yeah yeah. and uh something that the film like when i when i could really tell that the film had sort of worked on me is that after seeing it i uh, i went and uh, got a coffee and uh, and i was just sitting down and like i hadn't i didn't like properly like uh, like cry during the film i am a bit of a film cry but it did, like i didn't really but i got you know I, I teared up a little bit and stuff but then i was sitting down and i just like thought about i like i made a connection in the movie between like a two of the elements and it was and it just like brought tears to my eyes like <laughs> after the film which wow. is quite a quite unusual because i was like oh my goodness um and uh yeah i was quite you know i was impressed by that yeah and i was like that's good that's it's doing it yeah that's what you want from stories you know you want them to to sweep you up affect you afterwards yeah so i thought it was great yeah i mean it's just brilliant it's, it's an incredibly best. like confident just a consummate bit of filmmaking it's gotta go gotta go check it out this is a five-star film out of five ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Um, I know you're talking about how watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire brought tears to your eyes, but something that brought tears to my eyes was <laughs> reading that Indiana Jones 5, which is, seems to have been pre-production development for years now, ever since Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls came out and that everyone was like, this is brilliant, the best one yet. We need another one ASAP. Uh, it's been trundling along. Steven Spielberg, like a year ago, said like it's going to be his next movie and there's like a release day of 2021 penciled in. Harrison Ford's back. But Spielberg is stepping away. He's like, for no other reason, then he just feels like he doesn't want to do it. He's going to make Ready Player Two. He's going to make Ready Player Two. He's going to make Amistad Two. It's like there's there's, there's, <laughs> there's more, more of my sequels. more sequels to be made from my back catalogue, and apparently muted to take his place in the director's chairs, James Mangold, the genius auteur, the Ozu level genius of the human condition, <laughs> the guy who made Logan, Ford and Ferrari, Kate and Leopold, Night and Day, Three Tens of Union. Three Tens. That's pretty good actually. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a pretty good movie. <laughs> so Spielberg's out. Mangold's in. Does anyone care anymore? Surely it's like he's he's so intrinsic, intrinsic. Can't even speak today. He's so intrinsic to the uh, Indiana Jones thing. You know, it's like it's all Spielberg. It's all about directing. You know, it's- well, th- the fact that they made four, I mean, it was already unnecessary. Yeah. So you've already broken the seal, as it were. You know, exactly. why not make a fifth one? It's not like that's special anymore. I, m- I mean, I don't know. They're odd propositions because the Indiana Jones thing is is already you know, capturing this kind of uh, spirit, spirit of adventure, like like pulp adventure stories or whatever. Yeah. But the stars of such stories are not, they don't tend to be really old men. So it's already weird, you know? Yeah. Like just the, it shouldn't be about a really old man, really. I mean, that makes them a bit odd anyway, a bit of an odd proposition. I mean, it's the same, it's the same phenomenon we've, uh, we talked about with Star Wars in a way where like, you know, the initial property was drawing on all this pop culture that came before it and reinventing it in a fun new, you know, way that, that felt original uh, and now we're just getting the regurgitations of, you know, the copy of the copy. And um, it's very hard to be excited about it, I would say. You know, we're not, we can't, you can't be excited to see Indiana Jones be old and picking up his hat and his whip because that happened already. Yeah. Has Harrison Ford really changed that much in kind of his appearance or demeanor since Indiana Jones 4? No. It's kind of the same dude. More, more gruff, I don't know. Even more gruff. Even more old. I don't know. Maybe unless, unless he's starring alongside a CGI, a fully CGI dog. <laughs> um, i don't care i don't care i think the big problem with it is like yeah he has aged out of it and a problem with kingdom of the crystal skulls is that it kind of has to be in the late 1930s 1940s part of the joy of those movies are you know the biplanes and the nazis and the pistols and the you know it's like the very thing it's drawing on the mm. 1930s serials the aesthetic of that entire world is a big part of it so when it's going to be if it's going to be old in here jones and like the swinging 60s or something like he, he fought the the ruskies last time he's going to fight now you know like the more russians like it's just the, cold the vietnamese the vietnamese the Viet Cong. <laughs> <laughs> the Viet Cong. i hate those guys <laughs> yeah as the sort of villains become less and less obviously evil <laughs> Indiana Jones is sexy in the fucking Gulf War or something. It's just like he's fighting the Sandinistas. Or... 
Yeah, I think it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, you know what? If it's just a completely toned up, I think of him buying the Viet Cong. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, how old would he be? I mean, what like so? When was Indiana Jones Four set? Do you do you do you remember? That's in the fifties, right? It's in the fifties. I don't know. I don't know how old he was supposed to be playing then. Yeah, so I guess I guess we'd be getting into the the sixties. Maybe he'd be you know dealing with the Koreans. I don't know <laughs> the Koreans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Koreans are after the Spear of Destiny, the Pierce Crisis. <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> yeah, the Koreans were massively into the occult as well. Not just Hitler. <laughs> yeah. In conclusion, it was already not particularly appetizing prospect. Now that Spielberg's gone. I think I just think he's a much better director than James Mangold's. And there's so much so many directors. I mean, as we talked about the Star Wars, they're just a lot of mainstream directors are kind of doing Spielberg karaoke to begin with. Mm. He's such a has such an indelible mark on blockbuster filmmaking that it feels like anyone they bring in will just be doing their best Spielberg impression. They'll be like the Jurassic World sequels or whatever. So I think it will be bad. But hey. You know how part of Spielberg's style is this um, really dynamic camera. Yeah, that's always kind of you know always moving around and has a lot of energy and has a feeling of sort of youthful vigor to it. Yeah, would you say? <laughs> yeah, I would. You would. So, what would you do? You think you could direct a movie as if the camera was also seventy-seven years old? Like, would that make it like work? A, like a Michael Haneke movie, just slow, <laughs> <laughs> slow, but also a bit stuttering, like not smooth pans. You know, like yeah, so the a cro- little, like the head's a bit cropped off, <laughs> like. <laughs> just a little feeble yeah so that the, there's an explosion and the camera doesn't quite pan <laughs> quick enough yeah you kind of hear the noise of the background like oh <laughs> or frustrated or like when the, the camera kind of pans down as if to sit and it just sort of lets out there's like a long sigh yeah it just gets let out you just hear that so that when the movie is still following indiana jones at least the style of the film matches the subject yeah i'm looking for a slightly senile um, ill kind of uh, <laughs> tottering gaze gaze <laughs> gaze <laughs> from the director yeah if you weren't mad for this female gaze but I think the old scene old man gaze is going to be the new breakthrough <laughs> yeah. in cinema we're, we're, not, we're not seeing enough of it we're not seeing enough of it absolutely not you're a a teacher part time time to wade into a topic of which we know little the, the politics of french film criticism so the uh, famous magazine cahier de cinema which launched the french new wave and got out and used to write for it yeah it's it's the french science sound i guess it's the most prominent sort of respected film journal yeah. in france uh, the entire staff of the magazine uh, have quit en masse um which you, which you may have heard about uh, after the film was uh, taken over by a set of new shareholders, the journalist said in a statement that the new shareholders include eight producers who create a conflict of interest for a critical publication. Whatever articles are published, there would be a suspicion of interference. And uh, this is astonishing. I don't know if there's been a, um, a precedent for this kind of thing, of yeah. the, the entire staff of a magazine resigning. I mean, we saw there was, there was kind of a similar thing with the uh, website Deadspin. Uh, in the US where they got uh, taken over by a wealthy investor and then like basically the entire staff ended up revolting and sort of publishing articles making fun of him and so on. <laughs> um, but uh, this is, uh, this sort of like sudden mass resignation seems quite new and is, uh, yeah. yeah, and is, yeah, very, very impressive. 
Well, it was brought about because they said it was going to be a change in direction to like a more relaxed tone or something. Just but made it, it sound like they were going to defang the publication. They wanted it to be a little more chic like it used to be for decades and convivial without being insulting. Which is bullshit because it's famous for being quite a political magazine. Like, yes. You know. This is something else they, <laughs> these, uh, the, the writers and editors said in their statement. Kai has always been a politically engaged outlet taking clear positions. Uh, they pointed out that one of the magazine's most famous articles, Francois Truffaut's A Certain Tendency in French Cinema from 1954, was a fierce critique of bourgeois French cinema. Um, also, apparently, the new owners are big supporters of Macron. Ugh, say no more. And the staff have been uh, critical in the last few months of the media treatment of the Yellow Vest protest and proposed reforms to universities. And they questioned the legitimacy of the France's Minister of Culture when he was appointed. So they've been critical of the government and now it's being taken over by by government supporters so i wonder i mean i don't know if this will have uh, broader ramifications i mean is do you, do you know if kind of cinema is going to be restaffed or is it just going to shut down or what what's restaff a bunch of fucking melts <laughs> fucking yes restaffed by scabs yeah, sc- yeah. scabs are gonna be flocking to linkedin to check kind cinema's hiring page <laughs> yeah i mean it's very cool that they all quit good on them absolutely um yeah i don't know i i, I this kind of news story is like the political half of my Twitter feed is entering into my trivial film Twitter feed thing. We're like, shit, it's happening. Well, you're, you're a bit more plugged into film Twitter than I am. So what's the response being like? Everyone's just like, yeah, they're standing absolutely. with the... Absolutely. Like, it's so sort of strange because, I don't know, it feels like, you know, they're trying to buy the election. Now they're trying to buy the film reviews, you know, <laughs> like it's sort of... Jeff Bezos took over the Washington Post. Yeah, exactly. Now they're taking over Kaida Cinema. Yeah, it seems like this weird late stage capitalism where everyone owns everything. Well, like, me- media institutions are weak. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, but I would guess that their sales might not be as big as they used to be. Like magazines are in general in like substantial decline and are sort of consolidating and various ones are shutting down. Um, so, and, and also we've got a, a situation with uh, insane numbers of unbelievably rich people who don't know what the hell to do with their money. So they just yeah, do yeah. things like buy literary outfits. That's and, the yeah. thing. It's like this bizarre late stage capitalism thing where there's like six companies that owns six companies that own the world. And has the and it's weird this trickle down to now that Kaya de Cinemas has got had like a corporate takeover. That sentence is mad. Yeah. Like, you know, remember kind of, I don't know what their readership is like. Yeah, so I mean, why buy it? Why buy it? Yeah, what it, or just what are you leave it alone. It? Like, yeah, is it really making a dent in Macron's poll numbers? Like, yeah, the cinema's <laughs> reviews of like these movies. Yeah, it's very, uh, it is very strange. There's something interesting right at the end of this article. Yeah. Um, the end of this Guardian article about the story, it says that um, in September 2015, Kai put out its most ostensibly politically engaged issue. It's cover featuring a still from the French film One Wild Moment with the title The Political Emptiness of French Cinema. The editorial explicitly singled out Jacques Audiard's Deepin, a surprise Palme d'Or winner, as an example of the kind of BFMization of people's brains. Uh, that's a reference to a TV station in which social unrest isn't a problem to be solved politically, but only a setting for an action film. Kind of interesting little bit yeah. of uh, pushback. I remember seeing Deepin gave it a positive review. It's it's kind of true, yeah. In that it's like, have you did you see Deep End? No, but well, it's a it's a film that's about uh, uh, refugees in poverty and so on. Yeah. Uh, but it and I I thought it was rather good. Um, but it does like tend towards like action by the end. So it turns into like quite a sort of slick and exciting action movie. Um, but yeah, I mean that sounds like a good article. I would read that article. 
Not anymore, you can't. And now I can't. Well, I can, can read that specific one, but I guess it's subsequent ones, you know. It, would they be that daring? Maybe the new owners will overcompensate and they'll hire a bunch of ultra-edgy people to just publish, you know, uh, a picture of uh, Macron being hanged and that's the like <laughs> cover of the next issue. And they're like, see, see, we're daring. I hope so. Anyway. <laughs> I hope so. I hope they call for his death in the next issue. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth here. <laughs> yeah, we, we call for the president's death. That should be the other What could be more French than that? A violent revolution. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Okay, and on to more serious matters. Sam, I, I, I couldn't get to the cinema to see Birds of Prey. Um, but I'm. Why not? I'm. I'm, I'm I what, what happened? Uh, I just didn't want to. Uh, didn't appeal to me. <laughs> I just didn't want to go. <laughs> Shame on you. Can't believe you didn't see Birds of Prey. But I heard. I heard you. You've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. I mean, Suicide Squad was probably the worst film released that year. But Margot Robbie was very good in it. She yeah. was. She was a, one of the. One of the highlights. If like highlight might be pushing it slightly. One of the one of the good things about the movie was her and her performance. How does she fare in a film by herself? As a as a sort of quasi sequel to Suicide Squad, this film has got a very low bar to clear. Yeah, that movie was not good at all, and I'm happy to report that it is better than Suicide Squad. So on that count, it's a huge success. And uh, Margaret Robbie, yeah, she's fun in it. I mean, if you enjoyed her kind of camping it up as uh, Harley Quinn in that film, that's what she's doing here. She's sort of definitely doing her darndest. It's a very cartoonish type of performance, but certainly rather entertaining. So this is directed by uh, Kathy Yan, who's an example of that trend of um, when studios pick up someone who's made like one independent film and they're like, can we increase the size of your budget one million times? And, uh, and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it's got a, a sort of majority female cast. It's a very sort of female-focused uh, superhero film uh, based on a comic book property in which various uh, female villain characters from DC Comics all team up. And this story sees Harley Quinn. She's just uh, broken up with the Joker, oh, who no. is um, uh, fortunately not, not in the film. So Jared Leto is not bothering us. Uh, but she's, they, they break up at the beginning and then Harley Quinn finds that she's uh, being hunted basically by every uh, nasty person in the city now because she doesn't have the protection of the Joker. And there's a lot of plots that happens. There's some stolen diamond. There's an evil gangster um, played by Ewan McGregor. Uh, and gradually various other kind of women come into her orbit uh, and they, they sort of start working together. Here's a clip. Whoa, wait. What? Don't kill me. Ah, right. No, 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 seriously. Rami, Rami. Yeah. Come on, there's going to be something something we can figure out. Hey. Wait, wait, you lost something, right? You lost something, I heard you say it. A diamond. Yeah. I can help you find it. Seriously. I know the East End better than anybody. You want this diamond back? I'm your gal. So the, the bottom line in this film is that it's very familiar feeling uh, comic book hero action fair. It's probably somewhat similar to something like Deadpool. It's uh, kind of R-rated, very zany, kind of very comic. There's some fourth wall breaking. 
every second something there's some new color on the screen or some new sort of like whizzy gimmicky thing so you can never get bored the timeline is jumping all over the place like there's a lot of voiceover there's a lot of things happening which doesn't make the film great but it certainly you know means it might not be that boring and if this is the kind of movie that you like to watch i would say you will probably think that it's fine that's kind of how i felt watching it this is fine it's fine which you couldn't say about suicide squad that film was a terrible mess it wasn't fine and wasn't fine it wasn't okay <laughs> it was it was it was it was dreadful um so it's a big step up on that although it is unfortunately a little bit tied to suicide squad's aesthetic because it still does that thing of like graphics popping up on the screen all the time and text right. popping up on the screen like this this also feels like it was edited by the company that edited the trailer for suicide squad okay um and I, that's a little irritating um, it's very anarchic and it's kind of aesthetic and mode, uh, but that kind of rubs up against the fact that it feels rather sort of cautious and effortful the rest of the time. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like they really looked outside the box to, you know, making the film, but it sort of wants you to believe that they did. Um, it has, I would say, better than average action. Some of the stunts and stuff are quite good, but it suffers a little from doing that thing of like having a needle drop so that everything that happens is just awesome rather than there being actual tension in the in the fighting. I think that's a bit of an issue with these kinds of colorful sure. movies that um, brand themselves as maximizing the amount of fun you're supposed to be having, that like sick guitar licks will just like kick in when people start to fight. And it's a bit like, well, now I know what's going to happen. The sure. rhythm of this is decided in advance. So there's not going to be any tension about what's going to happen. And basically the girls are going to kick ass, you know? And insofar as that goes, that's like, it's quite good. It's, uh, there's a lot of plots, probably too much of that. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little bit poorly, like, uh, it's a bit half-baked. They haven't like, quite worked everything out. There's just, like, a lot of exposition, which is because it's an ensemble film and you've got introduced a million characters. But given that this is such light, frothy fare, I don't want to have to learn this many facts, you know? Sure. And there's, so, there's like, too much to keep track of, and the, the plot is always jumping backwards and forwards. And you can basically follow what's going on, but there's a lot of explaining, which just feels like is pointless. I don't need all this nonsense to happen. But as I say, colorful, bright, energetic. The, the women in the cast are sort of having fun with it, I would say. Good costumes, I'll say. Harley Quinn... Uh, wears a series of quite cool outfits in this film which i which i appreciated and enjoyed and i would say it was fine didn't really deserve it was a bit of a flop i think this movie i didn't deserve to be a huge flop any more say than like other comic book movies there are there are a lot of worse ones out there and this one was you know was fine cool yeah 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 that's all i gotta say about that my favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. On the 14th of January, Toby Mackenzie Barnes tweeted us. Tweeted us? Tweeted us? He tweeted us to say. I just watched a field in England. Considering you're both avowed wheat heads, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. A mere two months later ish. Let's hear, let's, let's hear the thoughts. All right. So this is the latest in a series where I catch up on some film that everyone else has seen. I wouldn't say this is quite in the same category of fame as The Wicker Man. Uh, but nevertheless, I hadn't seen it. And I was, you know, it's nice to get a request for a film to review. Uh, so I sat down to watch A Field in England. This is Ben Wheatley's fourth film. After he made uh, Down Terrace, then he made Kill List, then he made Sightseers, then he made uh, A Field in England. It is a black and white, uh, rather low-budget film uh, set in the English Civil War 
a um, bunch of people escape battle at the beginning of the, of the movie, wander across a field in England, and uh, get into some madcap hijinks involving magic mushrooms, uh, hallucinatory experiences, people turning on each other. Things go go a little wild. It's kind of a surreal adventure. Here is a clip. I've had little success in applying the master's arts. Been looking for anything of great worth. Which is why I've conjured you. This place holds a great treasure. I am certain of it. I merely require a keener eye to pinpoint a particular location. As much as I detest you personally, my dad, I acknowledge that your gifts are stronger in certain areas. Um, I do not have a huge amount of insightful stuff to say about this film, and I know that you've seen it and, and, and liked it, so you might be able to contribute more. I have to say I did not fully get it. I think perhaps it would have been better if I'd uh, gone to a cinema to see this film and been sort of forced to engage every one of my brain cells into you know, watching it rather than just like uh, put it on my laptop and watched it. It's certainly trippy and weird and it's kind of engaging and, it, and there, there are a lot of fun elements and the, the, uh, the performances are rather enjoyable, um, particularly uh, Reese Shearsmith, um, who's like one of the central characters and is quite fun in it. Um, but I'm not convinced there's that much really going on in this film. And the way I kind of reacted to it, especially having seen The Lighthouse recently, which similarly goes for atmosphere over everything and uh, has is also black and white and has this kind of strong aesthetic to it and has a dreamlike quality as well. Um, I, I find that Ben Wheatley, at least of the films of his that I've seen, he's a kind of endearingly unpretentious and direct director. And he takes a slightly sort of i don't know ramshackle is probably the wrong approach i mean he knows what he's doing and he you know he's a careful director there's something but chaotic I, about it there is something chaotic about him and i think that this it does make him endearing and i you know there's a lot of humor in his work but i i, I felt a bit like this type of film is more suited to an incredibly intense director like one of like you know more like uh, robert eggers or something like there's a lot of humor in the lighthouse but it just is the work of an of, a, of an absolute obsessive in a way that a field in England does feel a bit like he just went to a field and was just pissing about with the lads, you know, and then like turned it into a film afterwards. The the main element of the film that I think didn't feel like that at all was the dialogue. This film was written by Amy Jump, Ben Whitley's wife and longtime collaborator. And uh, also in a kind of Robert Eggersy way, it feels like it's precise to its period and it has a sort of Shakespearean lilt to it, which I found to like ring true or at least it, it worked basically they didn't the, the characters didn't sound stupid and they're always sort of saying interesting stuff yeah uh, and i and i enjoyed all of those types of interactions and the more kind of hallucinatory sequences i found a little you know like meh. <laughs> <laughs> i just i just didn't i slightly i i just slightly bounced off it it's kind of like a slow-mo and like the screen is reversed and you know crazy things are happening but i don't know what did you what did you think of it well, I did see it in the cinema. In fact, I saw it when Andy Murray won Wimbledon for the first time. I was like, "Fuck Wimbledon! I'm going to the movies." Uh, I watched. I watched that Wimbledon final. Well, that's because you're not a true cineasta like myself. <laughs> I'm trying to make up for it now. Uh, with a Q and A with Ben Wheatley and Rhys Shearsmith afterwards, it was a fun day at the movies. But that's beside the point. Um, 
Yeah, I think I, I kind of got more of it. It's like, it's definitely like a, a trip. And I think it's probably referencing some sort of like Grindhouse 60s type of filmmaking, which I have not that familiar with. I just kind of liked it for its weirdness. It's so, what I like about Ben Wheatley is that it's so quintessentially British, but not in a Merchant Ivory kind of way. It's like the humor, is something, it's always like these kind of out there elements mixed with something very grounded. And it is kind of like four blokes just trying to get to a pub is the plot. But then it, yeah. gets, but then it gets weird. But then it gets weird. It does get weird. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just like watching in a cinema, you're more like swept up with the experience. You know, it begins with someone escaping a battle. And they're all talking in a bit of a strange way. And then they meet up. One guy's got like some hideous venereal disease. And then they pull a man out of like thin air. It's Michael Smiley. And it comes, a, comes out of the ground. Comes out of the ground. Quite a sort of sinister performance. I think there was just, I was constantly just like, wow, this is a new weird thing that's happening. Yeah. And then like, it had this very, I think like arresting visual style where like all these tableaus and I, I don't know. I kind of was more sold on that. There's, there's more going on. What I like about him is that kind of like chaotic style to his filmmaking. But I feel there's a lot of thought going in, perhaps more so. Like, than I'm giving credit Then you'll give him credit for. Yeah. I think that, you know saying that i can't tell you what it is well but i'm just kind of sold on the I, fact if that if i read some essay that's like oh this is you know this film is really really deep or whatever then i might be convinced but yeah i mean I've, I've seen it a couple of times i remember enjoying it more the second time i kind of feel like his films reward repeat viewings there's a lot kind of packed into them this is all kind of vague and i feel like i'm not really selling it no no, 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 no. Like... fair enough i mean you know yeah i mean that's fine your mileage your mileage may vary yeah, but I'd be but um, I'd be interested to hear from Toby about. Uh, I mean, presumably he wanted us to review it because he liked the film. He wasn't looking for a slating, a yeah. sort of epic rant. Although you never know. Um, but uh, yeah, perhaps Spratz, you know, he can uh, sell it to me better than you did. When Ralph heard something that changed his life, what he listened to. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Danny and I have just taken a little peek. Uh, what's coming up see what we're going to be reviewing it's a little thin on the ground yeah that film escape from pretoria that we saw together is coming out we could review that next week um and uh, the color out of space which you've seen is also around that sort of trippy lovecraft adaptation with nicholas cage um but other than that there's not a it's not it's not a, it's not a crazy um month this one in march oh and baccarat i've seen that as well anyway so this might be another good opportunity for uh for us to catch up or for me to sort of fill in some of these gaps in my in my film knowledge and then you know fail to understand them and give them kind of middling reviews and upset our fans and uh so if you if you have anything else that you would like me to to watch or you'd like danny to watch it he's available too i've seen there's gaps in my there's gaps knowledge, in his knowledge. You know? so uh just um get in touch with us and uh and suggest something and then we will we can uh, yeah we can review it danny any final words to cap off this episode Ooh, that's that, well, that's enough. That lady's <laughs> on fire. <laughs> Is that what you wanted? Yes. Is that I'm, what you wanted? That's what I wanted. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in this time. Please tune in again. 
See you then. Bye. Bye-bye. And so to say, I mean, it's very much like this is a queer story, but I think it's very interesting also, and I'm very glad that you're a man and you're saying this, because I think you can take it home and just use it for, I mean, for, every, for your own life to invent. Then because I think there's, of course, there's no, there's, it's a proposition, no men in the frame. It doesn't mean we want to erase men first. It just means it's, just, it's a proposition like for a movie for two hours, you know, it's okay. And uh, what I mean is like, I think what's what is the biggest change in this movie is that we are based, as Noemi says, erotism on collaboration, on imagination, and not on a domination that would be most of the time the strongest um, lift say like for for erotism would be domination and in our situation we're like equality is actually very exciting very much more exciting there is much more possibility for you to create for you to investigate all the possibility in life and in art and in sex life as well so Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.